0: Hi, I'm Sam Hume. I've just launched a new podcast called Pax Britannica and Fry and Bree offered me a chance to tell you all about it. Pax Britannica is the history of the largest empire the world has ever seen. An empire whose flag flew on every significant landmass on the planet and an empire that, more than any other, has made the world we live in today. Sadly, the British of my period were never too keen on popes, although one claimant to the throne, Henry Benedict Thomas Edward Maria Clement Francis Xavier Stuart, now that's a mouthful, did become a cardinal and styled himself Henry IX, but that's about as close to the papacy as my show will ever get. Beginning with the reign of James VI and I of Scotland, England and Ireland, Pax Britannica will be a chronological history of the British Empire from its early and tentative footholds in the New World to the famous British peace of global hegemony, and into its disintegration during the 20th century. 400 years of conquest, trade, colonization, piracy, revolutions and rebellions, slavery, technological marvels, and the rise of the modern world. If any of that sounds interesting to you, give Pax Britannica a try. Available on iTunes, Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and everywhere else you find good podcasts. Thanks again to Fry and Brie for giving me the chance to speak to you guys, and to you for listening.
1: Hello and welcome to Pontifax. I'm Fry.
2: And I'm Bree, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 35, Pope Sylvester the First.
1: Ooh, Sylvester.
2: Uh, yeah, this is a big one. We are in a pretty substantial time period here. Like, um, if we were to ask people, anybody who knew anything at all about the early church or history at this time... And we said, what do you know about the early church? The thing that they would tell you is the thing that happens in this papacy, so...
1: Oh man, look, I just woke up and I am blinking (laughs) really bad.
2: (laughs) Well, here, I'll give you a hint. It's the thing we're going to dedicate a whole episode to next week.
1: Oh, it's the council. It's here. We've made it. We have actually made it to the Council
2: of Nicaea, guys. Like... Ah! So, this is, I think, our first major Pope milestone since Peter, in in that sense. You know, I had a lot of people who have wrote in and they've said, Can't wait till you get to the Council of Nicaea! So, we are here, but we're gonna cover it in way, 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 way more depth next week. So, if you're a little bit disappointed that we just kind of brush it this week, there's a reason. It gets a whole episode of its own. But, Before we can get into that, we must go to confessional.
1: Oh no. Mm Mm-hmm. We haven't done this yet? We have not done this. This is our
2: first confessional. So bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It has been 35 episodes, and I have made no confession, so this is my first confession. And that confession is that on episode 30, I mistakenly said that Babylon was in Iran when it is supposed to be Iraq. And the worst part of this is in my notes. It actually does say Iraq. It was just my tongue that decided to deviate. So, thank you to Lyndon B. Johnson for catching this mistake. And hopefully, the Father will forgive us. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. With that done, now we can actually jump into uh, Pope Sylvester, so let's get at it. Pope Sylvester was born in San Angelo Ascala in Avellino, which is the Campania region of southern Italy. One source says he was born around 250, but this would make him around 64 at the start of his papacy and into his 80s by the end, which... It's possible, but, you know, it. it's not all that likely. The Empire has not been kind to Christians since 250, so whether or not we count that as valid is really up to personal decisions. We're just going to go with it because it was the only year that was given for him.
1: Yeah, how would he get that old? Yeah,
2: during horrible persecutions and things, yeah, not so much. So his father's name was Rufinus. We have a legendary source, the Vita Beatae Silvestri, which gives his mother's name. Ooh. Yeah, we don't get that very often. So his mother's name is Justa. Now, this is one of those sources that's, like, apocryphal and made up, like, the Acts of the Saints from much later in history, but... Since this is the first time we actually have, like, a documented mother's name, we are going to include it, because it will also be a long time before that happens again, so. The Saint's Life source suggests that he was put into the care of a priest at a young age, but this isn't corroborated or expanded on anywhere else, and... We can't really be sure if this meant that he was being raised by a priest in the absence of his parents or that this priest was like a mentor teaching him the religion from an early age or if this was kind of a sign that at this point he was meant to enter the, the church from the get-go. This is a path they had set out
1: for him. So like a like a priestly tutor? mm mm-hmm. Like when you're gonna give your child to the church? Kind of. It's like It's like a church apprenticeship. Maybe.
2: Either that or he was orphaned and the priest was raising him. We don't really know. So, one or the other. But either way, he does, of course, enter the church and is made a deacon sometime in the papacy of Militiades, who is the one who consecrates him, and then after Militiades' death, Sylvester becomes the next pope. And... That's pretty much all we know about him and his early life. Uh, there is this weird mention in the Liber Pontificalis that he was on, like he was in exile on Mount Serapton, which we don't really know anything about. It comes from a minor notation in the 5th century in an Armenian document that's accounting a legend that we're gonna talk about a little bit later, but it's, it's not backed up anywhere else and Weirdly, no one even knows for sure where this Mount Serapton is supposed to be. (laughs) So um, the best guess is it's a mountain outside Rome today known as Monte Serate, but mm, that's not even 100% guaranteed that those are the same place. So maybe during the persecutions he spent some time in exile or maybe not. That little notation is all we have, so maybe, maybe not. But now he's Pope, and in this new world of Christian legitimacy, the first thing he is going to do is that whole Donatist issue that we discussed a little bit last week. So brief refresher, since it will be last week when the podcast came out, but it was almost two weeks since our last recording. So Donatist was a rival claimant to the bishopric in Carthage, and he was an extremely avid proponent for the need of rebaptism, you know, that whole thing that we've been discussing forever since Novation and all of that. So, and also that clergy had to be living pure lives in order to give valid sacraments. So, you know, he thinks that if you've been baptized by a heretic, you need to be rebaptized, which we know mm. the church is not okay with. And also if your priest has any sort of mar on his character, he doesn't actually give valid
1: sacraments. He doesn't count? Oh.
2: Yeah, so you may have to do it again. And when his man wasn't confirmed by the Pope as the bishop in Carthage, because he he didn't want to be the bishop himself, Donatus. He he had put someone else forward to kind of do his dirty work. Ooh, what a little weasel man. Yeah, yeah. Donatus is not a particularly likable figure. So his man had been put up for the bishopric, and the pope had said no. Militiades had supported the other claimant. And Donatus and his followers had appealed to the emperor, which led to the Lateran Council that we discussed last week. And The way that the council had been structured, the strict rules, and the way that Militides had made sure there was enough bishops to ensure the outcome that he wanted infuriated the Donatists who left that council without even making their own argument and were ruled against by default. So Donatists got condemned, and that's where we left it kind of last week, because Militides died before the next step. But Donatus was not finished, and he reappealed to the emperor to hold a purely Gallic synod to actually oversee this matter, because that's what he had wanted in the first place. He wanted this synod about the bishopric of Carthage to happen in Gaul, because he felt like that would be more neutral or maybe sway things more in his way, and then Militiades had brought it to Rome and put a whole bunch of Italian bishops in that were not going to play nice with Donatus, so... This is where we are now. Militiades died, and the emperor is granting Donatus this second council. So this will be called the First Council of Arles, and it's six months after Sylvester is consecrated as Pope.
1: At least they waited. Yeah, kind of.
2: Sylvester didn't attend the council himself, which isn't exactly unusual. We've seen this for the singular matters before. He sends four representatives in his stead two priests, and two deacons. We don't really have any personal account here of what Sylvester's own views were about this whole Donatist issue, but since we know that he was a follower of Militiades and he's the next pope, then because this council in Arles also decides to rule against Donatist, despite his best efforts to stack the deck in his favor, we can assume that this is what Sylvester would have wanted. He, he's clearly an anti-Donatist, even though we don't have any sources saying so. The council in Arles affirms the condemnation of Donatists, and both the church and the emperor take measures to suppress the Donatists after this moment as a whole. You know, I guess the emperor's really annoyed that he keeps getting petitioned by these guys to hold a council to say the same thing that the other council has already said. But the Donatists will break away from the church and continue to have a pretty strong presence, especially in Africa, for another 200 years. And of course, they're going to continue to set up rival bishops in Africa, and there's going to be that ongoing schism. So we're not quite done with that, but Sylvester has allowed this council to proceed. It has condemned Donatists again, and they're just going to move forward as if these people are dealt with. So now... Moving into the rest of his papacy, we we do need to say that covering the rest of his papacy is, is a little bit of a challenge, because a lot starts to happen at once, and we're gonna have to, like, break it up into little chunks for everything to make sense, so you're gonna have to bear with me as I try to cover this in some kind of narrative, because, you know, this is all happening at the same time, and we're gonna do a little bit of jumping, and we're gonna... We're going to save some of it for next week and and so on and so on. So the first thing I want to talk about with Sylvester is the Liber Pontificalis.
1: All right, we'll get that out of the way.
2: Well, we have been sourcing from the Liber Pontificalis from the very beginning of this podcast. And what we know about it generally is that it doesn't tell us much. And what it does tell us is usually not true. And usually when we're sourcing from this book... What we usually have for each Pope is about half a page, maybe a full page, maybe a page and a little bit of the next, but that's about all that we get from this book. It's usually very succinct, like, this was the Pope, this is how long he was, this is what he did, he's dead, moving on. So, usually about half a page. Sylvester's entry, on the other hand, is 29 pages! Wow,
1: okay. He's like a whole quarter of this book, all by himself. So. I guess we're not getting that out of the way. But why?
2: Why is this Pope, who we, we don't have a lot to say on yet, why does he get 29 pages? Well, <laughs> vainly because his entry has very little to do with him at all. Oh. It's mostly just a cataloged list of all of the gifts that Emperor Constantine bestowed on the church at this time.
1: Oh, it's like a begetting, but with presents? Mm Mm-hmm.
2: So it's basically everything that, you know, all the churches that were being founded in conjunction with Constantine, because he built a lot of churches at this time, and then all the gifts that he used to fill these newly built facilities, the money that it's worth, (laughs) it's so long, and there are so many things, like countless items of silver and gold and chandeliers and lamps, patents, goblets, altars, pitchers, vases, jars, candelabras, estates, properties, oils, spices, papyrus, literally, like, there is no way to overstate the immensity of this list. Like, there's 29 pages of just itemized This is what's going to the church at this point. And it would take way too long to recite it all here. So what we need to take away from this is that the church's wealth has just exploded beyond anything that they could have ever imagined.
1: Yep, 29 pages of presents. Yeah,
2: like they literally just became legal. And now they're rich as hell about it. So it's pretty impressive. But what is important about this, and and that we will discuss in at least a little bit more detail, is the foundation of the major significant churches that are happening at this time in Rome. Because these are a lot of the churches that we still have, you know, it's, the, these are going to be the marks of distinction for the church for for hundreds and hundreds of years. So it's also important to note that it's said that these churches were in large part being founded by Constantine obviously. He's such a monumental figure that he's going to be the person that when we look back on this time period in history, we don't look to the popes, we look to Constantine. He is the Christianizer of Rome. So he clearly is getting top billing for everything that's being built at this time. But that being said, there is no way to assume that Sylvester wasn't participating in this. Like he's probably taking this and running with it, with Constantine, like, just, yeah, you want to build churches? Let's, let's build churches. I am 100% in. I'm participating. You know, he's just absolutely going to be overshadowed by, you know, giant of history moments. So the most powerful man in the entire Western world, arguably, is showering the church with gifts and wealth and new lands. So yeah, most of this goes to Constantine, but we're going to credit Sylvester with it a little bit. So the first of these major churches is the Basilica of St. John Lateran, which is attached to the Lateran Palace that we talked about last week. It was constructed on the site of the raised army barracks that we mentioned after after the Civil War. And if you're going to the Lateran Palace in Rome today, this is likely the first part you will see. It's As, as you come up on it, you're going to see the Basilica more than the palace. And it's pretty impressive, aside from the fact that they've put a bus exchange right out in front of it. Ah! Yeah, it's a little bit strange. People gotta go places. Well, they do, and, uh, you know, they're just right there, and at least if you're there in the summer, the bus exchange will give you a little bit of shade while you're staring at the beautiful thing, so... Yeah, but it it is one of those very odd, like, old world, new world moments, so... (laughs) Uh, And then we have the Basilica of Santa Croce in Jerusalem, which was constructed for the relics of Jesus's passion. And the floor of this basilica is covered in soil from Jerusalem. This is also still there. And then we have the original St. Peter's Basilica on Vatican Hill that he started at this point. So this is now called the Old St. Peter's and has been replaced, of course, with the New St. Peter's, which is there now on the same spot since, you know, burial place of the apostle. The Old One would last until the 16th century, and it took about 40 years to complete the build at this time. So this is a pretty major landmark as well. (laughs) St. Peter's starts at this point in the 300s. There's also another church that Sylvester gets associated with, which is the Church of Equidius, now called San Martino I. Monti, near the Baths of Diocletian, which he is said to have founded on the site that was donated to the church by a presbyter called Equidius, and it also still exists, and supposedly has housed Carmelite friars since the 1300s, so it's still getting used. These are the major ones. Um, there's certainly more particularly like cemeterial churches over the graves of martyrs, like the Pope Felix, Martyr Felix confusion moment. And on a strange side note, apparently Sylvester also established a school for liturgical singing at the time. Oh. Yeah, that was a thing. I just was reading some sources and all they said was singing school. And I'm like, why is this Pope man worried about singing? But it's a liturgical singing school that was established in Rome. There you go. So church is over. It's time for Heresy Part 2. All right. This is the big one. We have talked about the Donatists, and now it's time for the Arians. And this is going to be the one that's going to lead to the big things. And all of this has to do with a Berber priest called Arius from Alexandria and his thoughts on the nature of the Trinity. Well, okay. I'm surprised you did not go Berber.
1: You know, I already did
2: Berber. Every time I think when I'm writing about the Berbers, I think of you going Berber. So we have talked about the nature of the Trinity before with Hippolytus and Dionysius and the Adoptionists and the Monarchians. Nobody knows. Exactly. So it's not a terribly surprising thing that this is going to be a defining moment of the early church, that this theological issue is coming to the forefront, but it is going to be Arius's particular teachings that eventually bring it to a head where it needs to be dealt with. Arius's viewpoint was that God, the Father, and Jesus, the Son, were entirely different because the Son had been begotten slash made or created by God, and therefore he was inferior to God and had not always existed, so therefore he was neither eternal nor entirely divine. So he argued, if the Father begat the Son, then he who was begotten had a beginning in existence, and from this it follows that there was a time when the Son was not. Okay. Yeah this is all very esoteric but it is a huge problem for the church
1: i bet you you know you know that feeling when you're going to sleep and you just have like a nagging thought yep this sounds like one of those
2: oh yeah and it is the nagging thought that would be heard the world over so (laughs) um you know the, the church has more or less adopted the view that hippolytus had presented which was if we need to refresh our memory is the, where the Logos, which is the divinity or the Word, is Christ, so that when the Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, this is John 1-1, Christ as eternal and as God. So this is kind of what the church has said, and now Arius is going, hmm, hang on a sec, so. And the chief supporter of this Trinitarian viewpoint that the church has actually accepted, this, you know, old Hippolytus viewpoint at the time, is a man, the Bishop of Alexandria, called Alexander, and his protege Athanasius, who is going to be a major, major figure in the history of the church. And, uh, in the near future, we are going to have to cover him in so much depth, so he's getting a special episode, he is getting interludes, a in all future episode, and if you are a listener of Totalus Rankium, you've already heard a little bit about him, and this won't be a surprise, but if you have not heard of him, uh, tease, 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 this is a man who will be with us forever. Forever. <laughs> Five ever. <laughs> I'm still writing about him. Oh, you're so far ahead. Yeah, I'm currently working on, like, Pope 41, and yeah, there's there's still more to talk about. But right now, he's just the protege of Alexander, who is the Bishop of Alexandria, and he's our main figure here. He is able to use his position in Alexandria to have Arius, this theological heretic, basically, stripped of his position on the account of saying that Jesus was not God, and clearly that is heresy, so. However, the discussion is now out there, and people are starting to ask themselves if maybe Arius was right. After all, everyone knew that God had created or begat Christ, so how exactly was this to be reconciled? You know, this is an idea that is starting to have support, even among some prominent bishops, to the point where, especially in Alexandria, this is threatening to factionalize the church, the Arians versus the Trinitarians. Something needs to be done. this They need to look at this issue in a lot more depth. And Constantine, who has been, you know, supporting this religion quite seriously, he's looking to use Christianity as his unifier for his empire. And so when he looks down and sees all the cracks of the religion now and the fact that this issue, this Arian issue, is becoming a problem, that's not going to be easy to use it as your unifier. So this needs to be sorted out once and for all so that no one argues about this anymore at all. So a council is called. And this is the church's first ever ecumenical council to be held in Nicaea, Bithynia, which again is in modern-day Turkey to be held on May 20th of 325. We've made it. We're here. We're here. So let's talk about the actual council um, briefly, because next week it gets its own episode. The ultimate outcome of the council on the issue of the nature of Christ was what we will call the Homusius outcome, which is the Greek word for of one substance— or that word that we saw Dionysius of Alexandria use back in episode 27, consubstantial. This is the traditional Trinitarian viewpoint, which meant that Arius and the Arian viewpoint of a lesser, not-so-divine Christ begotten by God was wrong and condemned. And this resulted in the publication of the Nicene Creed which is the official and lasting belief statement on the nature of Christ, God, and the Holy Spirit that is still often and regularly recited in church liturgy and ceremony. It gets amended once in 381, but otherwise, it's still the official stance that is used today. And I'm going to have you read it for us.
1: Oh, yep. Okay. (laughs) I knew you'd know it as soon as you saw it. Oh, gosh. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Some of these words are different.
2: (laughs) Well, I mean, they, they changed it in 381, so we'll look at that as well um, in, a, in a future episode, but yeah.
1: Then it all makes sense. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. He didn't die. Oh, all right. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. And with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Yeah, so this is the main
2: part of this whole thing, and because, again, we're going to do this next week, we're going to leave it here
1: for this episode. Yeah. So, I wonder if Deacon Dad yelled amen at the the podcast. (laughs) I hope he did. (laughs) Hello, Deacon
2: Dad. (laughs) And if he has a more modern version that he'd love us to read on the show, he could send it over because I have this one, I have the 381 version, um, and then there are so many modern translations, so I'd love to see what they use. What's his favorite? Yeah, what is your favorite Nicene Creed? Because it's so important. (laughs) The other reason that we're going to leave the council here for now is because Pope Sylvester did not actually attend this council. Oh, really? Yeah, he sent legates in his stead. Two men called Vetus and Vicentius, who signed the official decrees on his behalf. What? He accepted and approved the council's decision in order to make it official. But otherwise, he's pretty removed from it all. Why didn't he go? Well, there's some sources that suggest it was because he was too old to travel. We don't. We don't know. It, it there's. It's possible. We don't have any verification of this. And but it's still one of the most major councils the church is ever going to have. And Yes, they don't have the ability of hindsight here,
1: but... But the Pope's not there.
2: Yeah, the Pope is not there. You know, for for a lot of the councils we're going to see, for a lot of the synods we're going to see, that's fine that the Pope is not there, although they do attend quite a few. This is strange that he doesn't come.
1: So is he too old? <sighs> Was he worried about, like, security?
2: Well, he still had to send people. It's You know, the council is... Well... Here, we'll get right into it, because the fact that he's not there really begs the question, who called this council in the first place? And, of course, looking at it and the fact that he wasn't there, it's probably definitely the Emperor Constantine rather than the Pope who's making this council happen. So, again, if he's worried about security, this is something that the Emperor is setting up. So, like, security's gonna be pretty good, uh, Well, again, we'll get into how much effort Constantine puts into this next week, but, yeah, sources will even go so far as to discuss that the Pope had been invited to the council by Constantine, so... Why didn't you go, Sylvester? What you doing? Well, and what that also tells us is that if he's being invited by the Emperor, he had nothing to do with it being called in the first place.
1: Yeah, that's true. But also, like, go. Yeah, go to the council. I mean,
2: I I understand that... Nicaea, like, Bithynia is not amazingly close (laughs) to Rome, but there's a reason that they chose Nicaea. It's because it's the closest place for everybody to come from all over the empire. This is the ecumenical council. That word literally means universal, so it's like everyone should be there. Pretty substantial. You know, before, we saw with Pope Felix, who, when he turned to Emperor Aurelian for support, Aurelian supported the primacy of Rome and the Pope in the church because it benefited him to have all that central power in Rome. Now, we have an emperor who, while he's embracing Christianity more than any other imperial figure who came before him, he has no motivation to recognize the Pope as the head of the church. None? No. He wants to be head dog of everything, you know? It's said that he treated Sylvester's legates with honor and respect, but... He clearly doesn't feel like he needs to defer to the Pope on this one. And he doesn't need to bolster primacy in Rome because he's not ruling from Rome. Within five years of the council, Constantine had settled in Byzantium as his new capital, which he then called Nova Roma, known later on as Constantinople. So he's like, I don't need your authority over there. I'm doing okay over here. And I think I'm going to keep all of that primacy bit for myself. So. Constantine is the one who wanted theological uniformity and official decisions, so he called the council, and he in no way felt deference to the pope. We've already seen the start of this, right? He's he's stepped in and handled religious affairs under militiades, and clearly he doesn't see himself as overstepping. And he's the known leader of the world. The church owes him everything. Twenty nine pages of gifts, <laughs> like he doesn't feel beholden. So. Even though we didn't make a big deal about Sylvester not, a- not attending that first Council of Arles that we were talking about, this one is different. This, his not being there, sets a pretty strong precedent for imperial interference in the church. Even if he does agree with what came out of the council, it's not good. And this is a historian's perspective that we see as fairly distinctive and significant when we look back on it. Maybe they didn't see it this way contemporaneously. Uh, We know for a fact, for a long while after this council, Christian writers and historians didn't see it the way we're talking about it now. They're not going, why didn't he go? (laughs) And we, we know this pretty much because we have an absolute slew of legends from after Sylvester's death till about the 8th century that come proliferating out at this point to paint Sylvester and Constantine as having this, like, extremely close relationship. Like, best bros-type situation. So, we're going to get into some legends. (laughs) So, one of the first legends that we start to see in the 5th and 6th centuries are looking to address the concerns that the later church was starting to see with this idea of the emperor having called the First Council and having the Pope be relatively hands-off. So sources begin to show up that argue that, no, 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 the Emperor and the Pope came together to call this council, and Sylvester did the bulk of the work to decide how it would be run. He he chose the bishop who would preside over the council, a bishop called Hosius, who we will definitely see again, and it was he who set out the details. You know, Constantine's the bystander. So there's a lot of those kind of things that come out but the most important legend to come out of this period began in the simican forgeries of the 6th century called that because they were written in the time of pope simicus and they were written as a way to support certain ideas that had recently been presented about papal supremacy by pope gelasius in the 490s it is also a legend that is referenced in the life and acts of blessed Sylvester, and even gregory of tours from the 580s which by the way I can't wait to get to him. He is ridiculous as a source. (laughs) Like, if we think the Liber Pontificalis is full of nonsense, just wait. And by the 8th century, it was officially being constructed as what we will call it, the Donation of Constantine. So this legend tells us that Emperor Constantine had leprosy. Okay. Not good. No. Which then Pope Sylvester cures him of when he administers the baptismal rite. And the emperor is so overwhelmed and grateful to the Pope that he officially and loudly confirmed Rome's primacy across the whole empire, east and west, Rome, over Antioch, over Alexandria, over Constantinople, over Jerusalem, over all spiritual matters and forms of worship, and that even the Pope was supreme above himself. So he had leprosy, Sylvester cures the leprosy and he's going, clearly you are a god on earth here and I bow down to you. In this recounting, Constantine resigns his imperial status. He gives up his robes and his crown because I am so beholden to you, Pope Sylvester, that I want to be a papal groom. I want to walk before your horse and guide him and serve you. And then, and only then, did the Pope grant him his crown back, out of goodwill. But that this inspired Constantine to leave Rome and rule from Constantinople, because now all of Rome would be governed by the spiritual supreme of the Pope. So, no, I give you my crown. Oh no, Constantine, that's quite okay, you can be emperor. Well, then I must rule from elsewhere so that our powers don't interfere.
1: Ridiculous.
2: It says a lot in a short story, you know. And this is this is what was quite proliferated at the time. The most important takeaway here is that Constantine is recognizing the absolute authority of the Pope and his ability to make and unmake temporal power. Historian Norman F. Cantor says of this story that, quote, the doctrine behind this charming story is a radical one. The Pope is supreme over all rulers, even the Roman emperor, who owes his crown to the Pope and therefore may be deposed by papal decree. So we can definitely see the intention behind these legends. Then, you know, by writing this later in history, they're associating it with this inception moment of the Christianization of the Empire, with the open acceptance of and submission to the Pope as ultimate authority And this will give all of those later popes a very strong precedent to argue for their power over the power of all the other rulers. So when they start coming up against kings and other emperors who think that they know better, the popes are going to look back and say, no, look at this donation of Constantine. I mean, he was one of the greatest rulers of all time, and even he understood the power of the pope. So clearly this is used to their advantage quite significantly later in history. Unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, however you look at it, by the 15th century, this legend was proven to be completely forged with the quote-unquote official donation of Constantine having been drafted in the 8th century as a tool to reinforce Pope Stephen II's influence in his appointment of Pepin the Short as the King of France. This is also how the Pope will acquire the papal state's territory, but hey, that is so far in the future, so. And we also know through Eusebius that Constantine wasn't actually baptized by Sylvester because he doesn't get baptized until his deathbed, uh, and he will be baptized by Eusebius of Nicomedia, not the same Eusebius that wrote the thing down. However, throughout the whole of the medieval period, up until that 15th century marker, This document, the Donation of Constantine, is constantly cited as a foundational text by which the Church justifies its power and influence over kings and emperors. And you can really see why. You know, he's being given, the Pope is being given the imperial throne, the absolute power over everything. It's the biggest legitimizing boost that the papacy could have possibly ever received at a time when it could be looked back as an age-old precedent to be unchallenged by medieval monarchs. He may not have attended the council, and that sets a bad precedent, but this legend that appears about him sets a pretty good precedent for future popes. But we're not completely done with legends yet, because there's a couple more that link Constantine and Sylvester together. This one seems to exist outside of the influence of the Donation of Constantine, because it has similar themes, but it doesn't work with the knowledge of the other story, So. This one comes from Giuseppe Petra, a folklorist who collected Sicilian folklore tales. And this one's called Lusantu Papa Silvestru, which tells us that Emperor Constantine, who who in this set of folklore is, is Jewish, not pagan or Christian, is considering taking a second wife. And he comes to the Pope to discuss the matter. And Sylvester says, um, no, that's not a thing you can do. The church is not about these second wives things. None of that. No. So Constantine gets very angry, and he threatens the Pope to give him his way. But Sylvester calls on God to witness the incident and escapes into the woods before Constantine's men can do any harm to him. But not long after the Pope's escape, Constantine gets extremely sick and is likely to die. God's divine judgment, you know, here. I guess. And while on his sickbed, he starts to have fever dreams and visions that make it clear to him that the only way he's going to survive this illness is to reconcile with the Pope. So Constantine desperately sends out messengers to find out where the Pope is hiding and bring him back. And they they do, and they find Sylvester living in a cave, and he shows these you know, messengers who've come to find him, he shows them a series of miracles and converts them and baptizes them before he follows them back to Constantine, who he also reconciles with and baptizes and so heals. So that's an offshoot story. And and then we have the legend of Sylvester slaying a dragon. Yeah. (laughs) Have you heard this one?
1: Um, I know that that's a thing.
2: In this legend, you know, Sylvester slays a dragon and resurrects the people that the dragon had killed. And this is why we will often see images of Pope Sylvester with a dragon. And the reason that this is a thing is it comes from that golden legend, which we've talked about. You know, all of those crazy stories about saints living lives full of crazy miracles and fantastical events. So, And we actually have this one fully quoted, so I can read it to you.
1: All right. Where did a dragon come from?
2: <laughs> uh, well... It came from a pit, or it is in a pit, and this is what we know. So this is from the Golden Legend, the story of Sylvester and the Dragon. In this time, it happened that there was at Rome a dragon in a pit, which every day slew with his breath more than three hundred men. Then came the bishops of the idols unto the emperor and said unto him, O thou most holy emperor, sith the time that thou hast received Christian faith, the dragon which is in yonder flossy pit, slayeth every day with his
1: breath more than 300 men. Why are there just 300 men crowding around this pit? <laughs> I have questions. Get away from the dragon! He's not coming out of the pit. Leave him alone. Then
2: sent the emperor for Saint Sylvester and asked counsel of him of this matter. Saint Sylvester answered that by the might of God, he promised to make him cease of his hurt and blusher of the people. Then St. Sylvester put himself to prayer, and St. Peter appeared to him and said, Go surely to the dragon, and the two priests that be with thee, take thee in thy company. And when thou shalt come to him, and thou shalt say to him in his manner, O Lord Jesus Christ, which was born of the Virgin Mary, crucified, buried, and arose, and now sitteth on the right side of the Father, this is he that shall come to deem and judge the living and the dead. I commend thee, Sathanas, that thou will bide him in this place till he comes. Then thou shalt bind his mouth with a thread, seal it with thy seal, wherein there is the imprint of the cross. Then thou and the two priests shall come to me whole and safe, such as bread I shall simply make ready for you, and ye shall eat. Thus, as St. Peter had said, St. Sylvester did, and when he came to the pit, he descended down on one hundred fifty steps, bearing with him two lanterns, found the dragon, said the words that St. Peter had said to him, and bound his mouth with the thread and sealed it, and after returned, and as he came upward again, he met with two enchanters, which followed him to see if he descended, which were almost dead of the stench of the dragon, whom he brought with him whole and sound, which anon were baptized, and with great multitude of the people with him. Thus was the city of Rome delivered from the double death that was the culture and worshipping of false idols and from the venom of the dragon. At the last, when St. Sylvester approached towards his death, he called to him the clergy and admonished them to have charity that they should diligently govern their churches to keep their flocks from the wolves.
1: Did someone just deliver like a Komodo dragon? Because it kind of sounds like a Komodo dragon. Like, oh, venomous mouth. It kind of does, but I mean, in the photos, it's large, and do Komodo dragons kill 300 men a day? You know what? Komodo dragons, from what I can tell, attack anything that smells like a hobo. Well, I mean, that makes
2: sense, then if he has hobos in his belly, he might make- he might have such a stench that would almost kill people.
1: I watched something, I don't even remember what it was, but like Nick Frost was like, komodo dragons won't attack you if you just if you smell good and then he had like (laughs) he bought shoes from a like a homeless man and brought them to the komodo dragon who immediately attacked them that's so
2: weird so if i'm going to be in an area with komodo dragons shower regularly put on some nice perfume you know just
1: smell really good Make sure you put some talc powder in your shoes. Maybe just wear new shoes, just to be sure. (laughs) Yeah, buy new shoes. So,
2: um, you come here for papal history and you get life tips.
1: How not to be attacked by a Komodo dragon. I mean, that's important. I learned this from Nick Frost, so I don't know Mm. how.
2: Yeah, might be a little bit sketchy, but hey, you know, try it out and let us know. No, actually, don't. Don't Don't do it. Don't do that. (laughs) Don't, please don't. Don't do that. (laughs) But if you, you know, for whatever reason are a zookeeper, could we ask
1: Maria? <laughs> Maria doesn't keep the animals. She only does, like, donations and accounting.
2: Oh, okay. See, I just knew she worked at the zoo. Yeah, but did, so. she does
1: money stuff at the zoo. The most boring of zoo jobs.
2: So those are the legends of Pope Sylvester. And then he dies on December 31st, or shortly before... And the Liber Pontificalis tells us only that he verily died Catholic and a confessor. So, you know, we can only assume that with everything else going on and how good the Christians have it, natural causes.
1: All right, yeah, that's fair. Also, he died Catholic? Of course. Shocker! Shocker!
2: <laughs> it's a really weird thing for them to have added in there, but it's there. So, he was buried in the catacombs of Priscilla on the Via Salaria, allegedly in a church that he was said to have built there. And his remains stayed in the church until 762, when Pope Paul I had them moved to a new basilica that he constructed in his honor, the San Silvestro in Capite, along with the remains of Pope Stephen I and Pope Dionysius, which also end up housed at this church. So this basilica is also famous for allegedly having a bone fragment from the head of John the Baptist. So it's definitely a well-known church in Rome.
1: A bone fragment from his head. From his head. Not the whole skull.
2: But that's how relics work, man. Especially the important people, they just kind of break them up and send them everywhere. Ooh. Yeah, we're gonna see a lot of that. That's Sylvester.
1: And we need to rate him. Well, let's do it, I guess. <laughs> Papatum
2: Inphallium. Uh, this is the beginning of the Christian Roman empire. Christianization has grown to its current absolute height of legitimacy, uh, its influence, and its wealth for the Roman world at this time. This is higher than it has ever been. The first martyrology of Roman martyrs that we still use to reference the most holy members of the church will be developed during Sylvester's papacy. Uh, The church's first ever ecumenical council in history took place and took the official stance on the nature of God, Christ, and the Trinity. The Nicene Creed echoes right to the modern day, as we said. First official establishment of the divinity of Christ. That's huge. That cannot be understated for this round. Papatum and this is huge points. Pope Sylvester II said that he chose this name in specific reference to the first pope because he wanted to emulate his influence on the world. Even though it wasn't ever true, the donation of Constantine would make him seem like an extremely influential and important figure for over 700 years in the church. So if we ask this question about how we should rate him at any other point in history during the medieval world, they would be giving him 20 out of 20, because this is the man who made it happen. We have to consider that even though it didn't happen in his time, he is a figure that is used for massive papal impact for the future. But there are some bads, right? He's not responsible for the proliferation or the gains of Christianity, this Constantine. He did not call the council, Constantine. He might
1: not have even been consulted. He did not attend the council. No, he, he's just sort of here and things are happening.
2: Yeah, so we this is where we need to make a judgment call over whether we think it's necessary for the Pope to have a first-hand role here. They're They're often not going to attend councils and synods that we see, but like... <sighs> Ecumenical councils, man he didn't even go, yeah exactly and and the last thing bad that we need to consider here is that he was existing in a time with an emperor who did nothing to help with papal primacy, so, like we said, he gets the credit of doing that from the legend, but not necessarily in real life, so it doesn't he doesn't get validated as the head of the church at any
1: point during his papacy, so no, if anything Constantine.
2: Yeah, so it's one of those things that we have to look at and go, we have to consider the impact of the legend, we have to consider the impact of the council, but, like, we have to take away from it because he had such a hands-off approach. So if he had been at the council, I think we'd have to give him 10.
1: Yeah, he would definitely get way more points.
2: I think for me, I because it would have been a 10, but he undercuts himself so much, I'm going to have it and give him 5.
1: Okay. I'm gonna give him a six because at least this one extra point is gonna be because he didn't piss off the Emperor. Fair enough, that is
2: that is a very good point. and we're gonna see what happens in the future when you still when you piss off an emperor who's still Christian. They're still not gonna be happy with you, so yeah, I think that that's good. I think an 11 is a very fair score there for him.
1: Fructus Prohibitum.
2: We've had some good Fructus Prohibitum lately, but uh, this is not one of those times. And we can't give him scandal score for not, for not attending the, the actual council. That...
1: No, that'd be rude. Oh, you didn't go? That's a scandal. But it wasn't. He didn't punch anybody. He didn't punch anybody. I miss
2: when they punched people. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but uh, don't worry. If you love the scandal category, if you love the forbidden fruit, there's more coming.
1: Well, I would hope so.
2: Oh, it's not going to take much longer to get there. Sizzle, sizzle, sizzle.
1: Seculari impactum. So the most important
2: impact here is, like you said, not pissing off the emperor. He's fostering and maintaining a relationship with the emperor that allows for the Christianization of Rome, which, I mean, in theory, drastically reduces the secular population. So it's definitely having a secular impact. It is. Even though we're going to have to hold it against him that Constantine is steamrolling over him. We can give him some points here for that good relationship that they had, uh, he could have argued with Constantine. He could have tried to stop him from interfering, and that would not have
1: gone well, so... It would have been very bad. <laughs> he
2: still has a pretty long-lasting legacy in Central Europe as well. You know, his feast is New Year's Eve, so a, a lot of these places are still have St. Sylvester's Day. Like, New Year's Eve is, is a holiday called St. Sylvester's Day. And in Sao Paulo, Brazil, there is even a St. Sylvester Road Race that is held on New Year's Eve. It's a fifteen kilometer road race and it's the oldest and largest race held in the city, so What? <laughs> it's weird, but uh it's secular impact. Secular people are running for Saint Sylvester, so Oh it's a
1: running race. I thought it was like a Vin Diesel race. <laughs> oh no,
2: no, not a not that kind of road race, like a like a, a running, running type race.
1: Less cool.
2: Well, I mean it means that people are actually getting out there. More people are going to be able to compete in a road race that is running than a car race. You're right. So he has secular impact. How do we score that? Mm, I can give him like a four. I was thinking, yeah, a four. I'm going to give him, you know, because he's drastically reducing the population of secular people in the empire.
1: I don't know if that's more Constantine again. Like, Constantine's like, I'm in this thing and I like it. And they're like, ooh, Constantine.
2: It's very true, but it is happening at this time. So there is a secular impact. I'm going to give him a point, one point for that. Two points for not messing up his relationship with the em- emperor. I'm going to give him a point for the riches and the wealth that the church is getting from the secular population. 29 pages. 29 pages. I actually sat there and counted them all. And then I'm going to give him two points for his current uh secular impact. So he's going to get a six from me, giving him a 10 in this category.
1: Fossium Sanctus. We've got some
2: things to look at for this category. Things. Yeah, yeah, um, we've got a couple. So the first one, here's the one we're gonna rate on. We'll rate him first. Here you go. Okay, um... This is a face of judgment.
1: But, yeah, he also, he looks like he's gonna fly away. (laughs) With the little wingy bits? Yeah, he's got winged hair.
2: Yeah, I mean... I think he's a lot more striking than a lot of the popes we've had recently. I, and, like, it's very, I, I don't know, there's something striking about it. It's very firm. He's got a very clear face. It's not just the quality of the image. There's just something about it that's very, it's, it's got a presence a little bit more than I think any pope, you know, up until Caius, who was our attractive looking pope man. Um,
1: I mean, he's not attractive. Well, maybe if he didn't no. have such a weird hair. <laughs>
2: I, yeah, give him a full head of hair and he'd be all right, I guess. He's not as, like, haggard and emaciated as some of the popes we've looked at. He doesn't look like he's ashamed of what he's done or tired, as we've seen. Which makes sense when you look at how the Empire's going. Um, I don't know. It's good. Good. He's gonna, he's gonna get a seven from me. Ooh, a seven? Yeah. It's just, it's, I feel like if he walked into a room, you'd pay some attention to him.
1: Yeah. You would. I wish he had a full head of hair. I feel like that kind of detracts, maybe if I put my hand over it. And remember, they did that on purpose. Yeah, they spent some time making it that way. He clearly has
2: full and luscious hair, so he probably had to shave it regularly.
1: So he can get sunburned on the top of his head. The worst place to be sunburned. Oh, yeah. I'll give him like a, yeah, like a six-ish, yeah.
2: So that's a 13, and when we put that through our calculator, that gives him a 3.25. That is a good score. Um, Sixtus 2 got a 3.5, and Caius got a 4, so he's, he's up there. Pretty good. Now, let's look at some things. Here's Sylvester
1: with his dragon. All right. There it is. Where's the dragon? Oh, there it is. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I know, that was my first thought when I saw it too. So, I mean, if you look at the size
1: of it, that could be a komodo dragon. Yeah, that could be a komodo dragon. They just added wings to it because someone said dragon.
2: And I mean, this dragon, I, I, I'm assuming that this is when it's supposed to be dead, since there's the dead people that he's resurrecting. But the dragon looks like it's cuddling.
1: Yeah, it does. The the one person's like, maybe I'll pull it out by its snout.
2: He could be rubbing it, giving it a nose boop or something, you know, he just could, <laughs> it's just, oh wait, that's actually, that is the Pope again, because if you look, there's oh. two Popes in this picture, it's like two different scenes they're
1: trying to convey here in one picture. This is too much. Oh, that's not how you slay a dragon first. There's no sword sword.
2: Well, he had to like tie something around its mouth. It was like oh. a thread, but. Okay, um, yeah,
1: we're doing the, you're right. We're doing the, he probably jumped on it, Steve Irwin style.
2: I he just looks like he's having a good scratch with a horse or something, you know? We have a statue of him in Montova, Italy. Is that a small
1: habit? It, no, it's it, an angel. It's a cherub.
2: Yeah, yeah, so that's a thing. And, and here's, here's the last one. This is uh, Sylvester and Constantine during the Donation of Constantine. Here you go. Let's see if you notice my favorite thing about this painting. (laughs) Is it the floating horse? (laughs) the floating (laughs) horse. Why is the horse floating? I don't know. But yeah, So so this is the moment where Emperor Constantine, who is the one who looks like he's dancing, is handing his crown over to the Pope and, you know, saying, you have all of the authority. So...
1: Wow. Just because he's on a chair doesn't mean he needs to be 12 feet tall.
2: Yeah, he's a, he's a big dude. You know, his presence, his power. And now look at his face in this one as well. Like, it's very similar to the one we raid on. He definitely has that commanding face again. I wouldn't mess with him.
1: Yeah, his benediction looks very angry. <laughs> he's a very serious benedictor. He's It's
2: that judgy face, but in a way that you're like, I kind of want to... Put in the effort and impress you, man. Is the emperor holding a knife in the other hand? No, he's holding the reins of the horse. Because remember, he wanted to be Sylvester's groom. Yeah, okay,
1: I see the rein, the floating horse, the miniature floating horse (laughs) behind him. But like, he's definitely holding the reins. But what's coming out of his hand?
2: That's the the top of the reins. Ah, yeah, see, it's kind of like flicked upwards, you know,
1: because he's. I see. Yeah, look at this terrible umbrella. Looks like a mushroom. I I
2: don't know why that would be there.
1: It's to keep the sun off his head. Well, you know, he
2: does have that bald spot, but his point is not far enough to to cover Sylvester. So, I I love these medieval paintings. Those are the images we have of Sylvester. Tempus Pontificus. January 31st, 314 to December 31st, 335, which is 21 years (laughs) Pope for so long that's a score of 5.25
1: all right everybody it's the canon bonus round do, 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 do.
2: yep he is a saint uh he has the feast day saint sylvester's day december 31st noted most specifically in german-speaking central european countries and he is a patron saint of so many things so here we go so he he is the patron saint of Faroleto Antico, which is a small town in the province of Catanazaro in Calabria. Patron saint of Benedictine monks, specifically the Silvestrine Congregation of the Order of St. Benedict, which the founder of the order is also called Sylvester, also known as St. Sylvester, but still Pope Sylvester is, is their patron saint. And he is the patron saint of Nonantola in the Po Valley in Italy, so lots of places. Like St. Sylvester. So, total score is a respectable 30.5. Ooh, wow, big. Yeah, he scored higher than our last one. Who scored nearly that high was Dionysius at 30.125. And the person who last beat him was, ooh, Calixtus. That's a fair ways back. You know considering the moment in history that he was pope for that makes sense but then we need to ask ourselves was he popey enough and pizzazzy enough to leave an impression for a papal bull can we give constantine the bull constantine would 100 percent get a bull constantine gets the sainthood too by the way like oh. he, he will be uh, he is definitely saint constantine and i'm pretty sure that he's the patron saint of something
1: is it extravagant gifts <laughs>
2: it should be <laughs> yeah he get he gets to be a patron saint of some organizations he's definitely a saint so well yeah so he doesn't get a bull mm. do we not want to
1: give one to sylvester no no sylvester doesn't
2: get one i agree you know even though he scored very very high in our categories he doesn't have that extra star quality really So, no papal bull for him, but that is not the end of our episode because we have some thank yous and we have some patrons. So, here we go. We need to absolve of their temporal punishments Tina Johnston and Dan Wright. Ooh, we got two patrons. Thank you to them very, very much for supporting us on Patreon. Ego te absolvo. We also need to thank the Why Is That podcast, who wrote a wonderful article called 10 New Podcasts That Launched in 2018 in History, and they put us on their list, which was excellent. Uh, the Empires of History podcast is always championing us on Twitter. We really appreciate that. Same with the Can't Make This Up podcast, always recommending us. That is awesome.
1: Every time, just, like, people are like, what should I listen to? And they're like, hey, this.
2: And and these guys, they are on it, and their shows are fantastic as well. So you should listen to them as well. Um, As well as Chris at the Age of Victoria podcast. Always amazing. Always recommending us. And I listen to every single episode he puts out as well. Fabulous show. His Christmas special, by the way, if you haven't listened to it, where he does the Christmas ghost story. Fantastic. I love all of his voices that he picked for the characters. Great. And also, Scott Rowland and the Roman and Hi- Byzantine History Group on Facebook. And finally, Podcast Junkie. Thank you. Uh, this, this is a podcast where they do reviews and recommend other podcasts on their show. And they are so active on Twitter and they will give you recommendations based on whatever genre you're looking for. And so they've recommended us to a bunch of people. Super, super cool. Thank you so much, guys.
1: So. We can be found on most major podcatching platforms, including Spotify. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook as Pod. Feel free to message us. We usually always respond. If you want to send us a more long-form message, request, or otherwise get a hold of us, our email is pontifaxpod at gmail.com. For our bonus episodes and exclusive content, head over to our Patreon page and donate. That's patreon.com forward slash pontifaxpod. If you feel the need to buy us a tea, because we're not really coffee drinkers, but we do love tea, you can throw us a few bucks in our PayPal account at paypal.me forward slash pontifaxpod. As always, please subscribe and rate and review on iTunes or whatever you use. It really helps us get recommended to other people and allows more people to find us. And with that, that
2: brings us to the end of the episode, and we can say thank you and goodbye. Bye.